the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast. This week we are once again fully focused on the European Commission's climate plans and their likely impact on shipping. Now, this is the second in a special two-part edition of the podcast, so if you haven't already caught up on last week's edition, I would highly recommend that you press pause right here and listen to the first part of the conversation before you move on. We're back with Feig Abazov of the Brussels-based NGO Transport and Environment and Satyrus Raptis of the European Community Shipowners Association, who are both talking to our sustainability editor, Anastasios Adamopoulos. In last week's episode, the discussion focused around shipping's inclusion into the EU emissions trading system and plans to impose greenhouse gas emission intensity requirements on fuels. This week, they're looking forward to what all this regional activity means for the global efforts on decarbonisation progress at the IMO. I think a lot of people outside of shipping are looking at the Renewable Energy Directive as, you know, a really important, really important document as far as the production of these fuels uh, is concerned in the EU and the allocation to, to the different sectors. We haven't really discussed or seen much um, sort of reaction to the potential effects of the Renewable Energy Directive for shipping. Could you give us an idea of why you think that is and what you, how you expect this specific proposal to affect renewables in shipping in the future, if at all in a substantial, to a substantial degree? I think that the two pieces of legislation have, have to be linked and there are references in the Renewable Energy Directive to the fuel EU maritime. Um, but before going uh, to to the Renewable Energy Directive, just a short comment on the enforcement under the new um, fuel EU maritime proposal. The thing for us is that the problem is the non-EU fuel suppliers um, when it comes to to the enforcement outside the EU. By making um, in the market available biofuel blends that nobody can check the real content, they can have much larger market profits. They can say, for instance, in the bungalow delivery note that um, in the in the in the blend it's six percent um, of biofuels. Which competent authority can check that this is really six percent and not two percent in the fuel blend of the ship? And this difference makes a huge um, can can give a huge market profit to the fuel supplier. This is our concern, that we are not in control of the quality of, of, uh, of the fuels uh, ship's bunker, um, especially outside, uh, outside the EU, when it comes to EU regulations. We are ready and we are open to discuss the idea of introducing multipliers. It's an idea that we will seriously uh, consider. But when it comes to the credit system, we're really concerned that a credit system put together with EU harmonized penalties can effectively create a new trading scheme on top of the EU ETS. And this is something that we criticized before the publication of the proposal when um, the first draft was leaked uh, in the press. 
So we were ready to discuss about different solutions. We were ready to discuss about the multipliers. It's an idea that we have to, to consider internally with our experts. But when it comes to a credit system next to EU harmonized penalties, we find it highly problematic. Talking about red, um, red was one of the three main pieces of um, of the package, the 2020-20 package of 2008. It aimed at um, incentivizing incentivizing the uptake of renewables, not only transport for transport there is a sub-target, the current one at 14% of the energy mix, but it aimed to incentivize the uptake of renewables in all sectors. And um, to a great extent, it has succeeded. On the one hand, there is a carbon pricing mechanism generating revenues. On the other hand, there is a renewables target. The revenues from the carbon pricing mechanism are used to achieve the renewables target. This is how it has worked the last um, 13 years in the EU. And this is why, as consumers, we don't pay the full bill. The difference between renewables, which is um, much, um, much smaller now, um, but it wasn't like that 12 or 15 years ago. The price gap between renewables and coal was financed through the ETS revenues. The consumer didn't pay the full bill in the end. So the discussion is about sharing the burden. And this is, this is something that we need to see also happening for shipping. The use of the revenues from the ETS to bridge the price gap between new fuels, clean fuels, and conventional fuels. And this is why we need to bring closer the fuel EU maritime to the logic of the Renewable Energy Directive. And this is why we're talking again and again about the responsibility of the fuel suppliers. Not because we don't want to take up on our responsibilities, but because we need to design a system that is fit for purpose and um, a system that makes sure that all stakeholders in the market share the burden. That's why we, we again, I, I go back to the ETS. This is one of the main reasons why we need a sector-specific uh, fund to use the money, to use the revenues, to breathe, to breathe the price gap between the fuels. Otherwise, enforcement will all will will be an issue, and we're really ready uh, to discuss about uh, other solutions. But the problem of of the price uh, Fike uh, referred to is the same for for other sectors as well. Um, of course, other sectors cannot refuel um, uh, as easy outside the EU. We know that and we recognize um, the issue there. But the spike on the on the energy price is an, is an issue uh, for all sectors. The big discussion now in the EU ETS is the inclusion of road transport and the introduction of a carbon premium uh, on the fuel supply a price that uh, the final consumer will pay in the end. And um, it has been very, it had been very high on the agenda of the member states and of the European Parliament for this reason. Because many stakeholders in the market don't find it 
fair. So it's not about bypassing the regulation, it's about designing a system that gives the right incentives and requirements to all market stakeholders. We could keep going about the specific issue all day, but I think considering how much, again, things could change through the negotiations, this is something that's going to, you know, we're going to keep discussing for for some time. So I do want to move on the, the international side of things because, you know, this is all very important and we sort of dis- discussed the um, the potential effects and especially for, for EU shipping. And the EU is does account for a minority of, of international trade, but a really important one. And in many ways, what's being done here is set, setting certain standards. Now, who's going to follow them elsewhere is, is a different question, and it's probably too early to answer it, but it is a very important one. And I think looking more, looking more long-term, one of the main consequences of what's going on in Europe is on the, the progress of global shipping decarbonization, which from the perspective of this industry is what this is all about. The IMO, the International Maritime Organization, is the global regulator, but we've seen it, you know, it has its targets, which is to, uh, the main one, the main one being to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from international shipping by at least 50% by 2050 compared to 2008. Um, and these will likely be revised in 2023. What a lot of people who are, you know, staunch supporters of the International Maritime Organization as the only competent authority for regulations that affect international shipping is that any regional approach like the one that the commission is is proposing could potentially lead to a irreversible fragmentation in global negotiations for decarbonization. A lot of people don't buy that argument and basically say the opposite that the you the, this this approach is actually going to to force governments in the IMO who are less willing to take action to act faster and to to compromise to higher targets and stricter regulations. Now we're at that point in the IMO where we've just finished the the discussion on short-term measures which left many observers quite disappointed in terms of both the ambition of the measures and the the enforcement mechanisms that uh, have been deemed to be weak. But now governments have agreed from the next session onwards in the fall to start discussing long-term measures and including market-based measures, which could be a carbon tax, an emissions trading system, etc. Fike, you are one of those people who over the past couple of years has been disappointed with progress at the IMO. How do you see at this point with the commission proposals, with the fact that it includes international voyages, so it's got a, a really important scope that directly sort of affects the IMO's mandate as well. How do you see that affecting negotiations at the IMO and the targets that government set there? Do you expect that it's going to force more action in that forum? Thanks, Anastasia. Let me, let me start by answering your question by actually commenting on one specific element you said. Um, um, again, perhaps you were referring to, to, to the opinion expressed by others that IMO is the only competent authority that can regulate shipping. Now, yes. obviously, you're not the first one who have who have used this sentiment. Pretty much everybody from the shipping industry actually uses that sentiment. 
let me disagree with that one because such a statement that IMO is the only competent authority is either a political statement or a personal emotional statement. Because what gives competence, what gives authority to, to institutions, whether it's states, regional organizations like European Union or international organizations like IMO, is not the opinion of individual stakeholders, but it is the international law. And the basis of this is the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Seas, which explicitly gives competence not only to flag states working through international organizations like IMO to regulate shipping, but also port states, ports they control, that uh, have the authority, explicit jurisdiction to set pretty much whatever regulations they want on ships that voluntarily call on their, at their port. And that is the basis of EU 5455 for shipping. As simple as that. Again, it's not, it doesn't depend on my opinion. It doesn't depend on your opinion. As such. It doesn't depend on Satiris's opinion. This is a legal fact defined and defended by the letter and the spirit of the law. Let's just put this aside. Now, how does it impact IMO though? Because regardless of what jurisdiction the European Union has, IMO also has a jurisdiction and how the two will interact. Let's take things one by one. First, um, IMO recently adopted uh, Operational Carbon Intensity Standard, CII. That's the code name. When the CII was originally proposed, I believe like two years ago, there was a competing proposal that was a prescriptive speed limit on ships. Many countries and large parts of the industry especially on the container side, argued that prescriptive regulations are bad, specifically speed limits, prescriptive, prescriptive speed limits are bad, because it, um, it doesn't encourage innovation. That, yeah, it might improve energy efficiency of ships, but it will not give incentives to, to change fuel, to deploy innovative technological solutions. We said, okay, we disagreed, but we said, all right, let's go with CII. Now, CII was supposed to deliver both energy efficiency improvements and incentives to switch fuel. Again, if you, if you follow, if you followed, or if you follow in the records, all those discussions, all those negotiations at the IMO, the objective of CII was both change in the energy efficiency and change in fuel. CII, pretty much everybody agreed that will not even deliver energy efficiency, let alone fuel change. From that perspective, CII, which theoretically could compete with fuel EU maritime initiative, it has failed miserably in its work, it has failed miserably in its objective. In that sense, it just fueled the need, fuel the justification to have a standalone fuel regulation at the European level. Again, everybody, whoever is observing this process, have the incentive to, um, they have the immediate reaction to compare ETS and global MBM, but fuel EU and CII, they were competing as well. And given that CII is such a weak regulation, that just gives um, additional justification for the existence of fuel EU maritime initiative. Now, when it comes to ETS, ETS is here, it's happening, it will be enforced in a few years time. 
there is a legal mechanism in place, meaning the EU ETS directive. They have plenty of experience how to do this, and they have all the legal and practical architecture how to enforce it. Now, NBM discussions at Diamo level, this is something we're all um, excited about and we're interested in. And we have a proposal, or rather, I would say we have two proposals on the table right now. Just concentrate on one, uh, the proposal by the Republic, um, Republic of Marshall Islands and Solomon Islands, which is $100 per ton of CO2 compared to about $67 per ton of CO2 under the ETS today. Um, RMI proposal is, is fairly ambitious and we openly explicitly supported it and we will work towards its adoption at the IMO level. But again, it's not TNE who decides what IMO adopts. It is member states. And some of the world's member states at Diamo have expressed their concern about the UETS. So our argument is that if they don't want EU ETS, then they should adopt the RMI proposal, as simple as that. Now, we're in they are in between. Um, there, is a, there is a choice. They cannot say no to either of those. One has to, has to be adopted. And to be honest, if we are serious about climate change, both need to be adopted. If they do not say, if they do not positively welcome and implement as soon as possible proposals similar to RMI proposal, because it needs to be further developed, then they have no moral authority to express their concern or objection about the EATS. The EU ETS is not a new phenomenon. It was launched in 2005, and since 2000, um, if I remember correctly, three, the European Union have been giving deadlines to DIMO that they need to do something about shipping emissions. It's almost 20 years, and it's almost as old that those deadlines are as old as the ETS. They knew that this is coming, so they shouldn't be expressing surprise because they knew again that this was coming. And if they haven't done their utmost to achieve emission reductions in line uh, with, the, with, with, with science, with climate science, they can only blame themselves. Now, practically putting all those uh, you know, um, argumentation aside, what does it mean for IMO negotiations having an ETS in place in Europe? In reality, in our, in our in our mind, it means additional incentive to actually work harder. The experience shows that whenever the regions or individual nations have moved first, this has given incentive to the IMO to catch up with the regional or national regulation. Sulfur, double hulls, MRV, you know, you can give many examples, including safety regulations after 9-11 in the United States. Secondly, does that mean that IMO needs to adopt an ETS mechanism, meaning specific carbon mechanism, carbon pricing mechanism to be compatible with the EU? No, this is a misconception. You can have a global fuel levy or CO2 level at IMO level and have an ETS at the EU level, you can still harmonize them. Practically it's possible. If somebody objects to this, um, probably they haven't really thought, thought, thought it through. Um, number three, if we have a global carbon pricing mechanism, what is the level of carbon pricing mechanism needed to achieve its goals, meaning to reach the price gap between dirty and clean fuel and give incentive for shipping companies to switch to the clean ones? 
fourth greenhouse gas study um, is quite informative in that regard. And the, the value they have put is um, about $400 per ton of CO2 and above, depending on fuel price and depending on when such a carbon price mechanism um, comes in. So this is astronomical. In that sense, the nature of the challenge is, is, is quite dramatic. And having a few dollars per ton of CO2 carbon price in place, it's not good enough justification in itself to call off any other national regional schemes that might be coming in addition to the ETS. So IMO needs to, if IMO wants to first maintain its authority, its political authority as, as a global and helpful regulator of shipping, it needs to deliver and it needs to deliver ambitious um, regulations, not um, uh, cosmetic ones. And for carbon pricing, the $100 per ton of CO2 proposed by RMI uh, and Solomon Islands is only the floor that could be accepted and justified as ambitious, not the ceiling. You, you've answered that in a way, but I do want to ask directly, you know, if there's a government, for example, looking at all this and saying, well, you know, they still need to negotiate this with um, with, with their with EU member states and the parliament, so there still is some time. Is there anything the IMO can do pretty quickly to prevent inclusion in the ETS, uh, shipping's inclusion in the ETS, as least as far as the international voyages are concerned? Or do you think that at this point that is almost certainly unstoppable and that their priority should be, like you said, go for the ambitious measures to keep their their legitimacy, if you like? Well, uh... I'm, I'm certainly not in the shoes of the member states who are negotiating it and not of the European Parliament. But if history is, um, is a judge, that this is pro pretty much unstoppable. But what is still important to take into consideration is that the EU Commission proposed to include only 50% of international shipping in the EU ETS. The remaining 50% still remains, will remain unregulated. There will be pressure on the EU Commission, on the member states, and certainly um, on the parliament, but also from the parliament itself, to actually re regulate that remaining 50% too. So if, I, if there is something that IMO can do at this stage in the immediate future, is actually adopt an ambitious global carbon pricing mechanism to prevent that remaining 50% from being regulated. And okay, number two, so... I mean, that's in relation to the EU ETS. And number yeah. two, I mean, we have already heard media, I mean, signals in the media, that the EU is not the only region or only institution that's actually planning shipping ETS or regional carbon right. pricing mechanism. We have heard signals from the UK, we have heard signals from China. They are all watching closely what the European Union is doing and how it is doing. Again, it's it's a question of... Um, how to how to implement such a measure in place, and they will be they have expressed explicitly that they will be learning from the experience from the European Union, and if needed, implement their own system. So IMO should not be putting its political effort to prevent EU ETS. This is going to happen regardless. What it could do is 
to prevent the EU ETS going 100% of international emissions in the EU, and perhaps prevent, uh, perhaps um, not giving the reason, not giving justification for other reasons to follow the EU in the footstep. And that is, again, I'm repeating myself by adopting a proposal that is similar or more ambitious than the one proposed by the Marshall Islands. Hmm. So there is, are you concerned about that, about the, the prospect that Feig mentioned at the end, you know, all these different jurisdictions looking, looking at the EU, partly waiting to see what happens with their proposal, but also the, the signals he said are being sent from these different regions about, you know, we could potentially include shipping as well in our in our national or regional uh, emissions trading schemes. Is that a concern for you? And back to the question about the impact of this whole EU endeavor on, on international progress, where, where do you stand on that? Mm-hmm. First of all, if I may, to, to, um, I, I need to clarify that the focus of our work is um, the, the EU process. We are represented uh, at IMO level by our colleagues and work closely with our colleagues in ICS. But clearly the focus of our work is uh, the EU process now. Our main concern from the very beginning was that any measures um, at EU level are running the risk of undermining the IMO negotiations. What we need is a global solution. What we would have preferred is a global approach. And this addresses the risk of a fragmented uh, regulatory regime. It's much better to have a global solution than regional solutions, for sure. And this is why we have uh, UN agencies, a number of UN agencies working on a number of different problems. Climate crisis is a global problem. It's not only a European problem, and we need global solutions. Uh, but having said that, um, it's important also to look at uh, the procedural impact. Um, the possible introduction of EU measures may have at IMO level. And we shouldn't probably be waiting for the adoption of the final texts. Uh, as we all know, um, the EU and the Commission claim competence um, once a proposal is tabled at EU level. This happened in the past with, um, the, with the EU MRV proposal. The Commission claimed competence and represented with one voice the then 28 uh, member states at IMO level. And um, the thing with um, the EU is that it's not represented only by uh, one state. It's not represented uh, by one uh, flag. It's the 27 EU member states lining uh, up behind the EU proposal, the EU position. And it, this is why we need to, uh, to be cautious when we design EU measures. Whatever is designed, is designed in the EU, it will be probably the EU proposal at IMO level as well. And this is why from the very beginning, we put a lot of emphasis on, on making a system consistent and scalable um, at IMO level. Whatever the EU decides, whatever the EU adopts, it has to be scalable at IMO level. Of course, different jurisdictions around the world can introduce different measures, but this is not desirable. 
uh, it will end up in a, in a myriad of different regulatory regimes and it, it, it will be also counter-effective. And the reason why we, again, um, came up with this proposal for, for a fund is that it resembles a lot the idea of introducing a levy at international level. A fund will stabilize the price, the carbon price, and it will give certainty to the companies about the carbon price of next year. It, 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 it really looks like a levy without being a levy. It doesn't require unanimity in the council, like a levy or a tax. Um, I mean, we've got the other proposal, the energy tax directive. This requires unanimity in the council. Such a concept, such an idea doesn't require unanimity in the council. And it will give uh, the opportunity to the IMO um, to go ahead and design a system that is really uh, fit for purpose. So some basic points. Uh, we need to be conscious that once an EU proposal is tabled, it is likely that the Commission will claim competence and will try to represent all EU member states uh, at IMO level. This happened in the past with uh, the EU MRV uh, proposal. And this is why we need to be conscious and design a system that would be scalable at IMO level. Uh, to make fit for purpose and to try hard and have a system um, um, that levels the playing field all across all across the world. Well, like, like you said, the the fact that the competence is is now with the commission already certainly puts pressure in within the IMO to sort of sort of get moving, and and we're having the first meetings in. Um, September and October, followed by the the main marine environmental uh, meeting in November after COP26. So the the next you know three four months are going to be re should be really big for the IMO, and it will be interesting to see the, the the immediate reactions to what the Commission is proposing. But pressure is one thing. The other thing is um, uh, the increased responsibility for the EU member states now mm. um, and for the for the EU institutions as well uh, because whatever they decide here in Brussels it will have probably an impact on the IMO process at least an impact on what uh, the 27 member states EU member states support at IMO level and that's why we need to be conscious in Brussels uh, about what um, how the how the system looks like and this is why we need to have in mind that any measures, uh, especially when it comes to the ETS, have to be scalable at IMO level. I mean, there is a reason why we have UN agencies. Eh? Uh, I mean, the, and the EU is a champion of uh, multilateralism uh, at international level. And we were probably, many of us, traumatized by the lack of international cooperation the last four years, especially from the US. There is a reason why we have UN agencies, and it's always much better to have uh, international solutions. Yeah, well, let's see how <laughs> see how many governments <laughs> listen to, to that point <laughs> over the next couple of years. It's going to be a, an interesting time, and I think COP26 is could be a whole other factor in in this in this conversation. But for now, I think I'm going to leave it here. I want to thank you both for taking 
a lot of your time to speak on these issues. I think they're really important. And I think as Fai mm. mentioned, the fuel you want specifically maybe hasn't registered with enough people. Uh, the significance of it hasn't registered. So I think it's really useful that we we had this this discussion. And I think, you know, you two obviously still have a lot of, of differences naturally between the two of you, but it is interesting to see how positions, especially within the industry, have shifted over the past couple of years toward a more sort of willingness to accept certain things in a climate that, you know, doesn't allow for for the the other option. Thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you, Anastasios, and um, thank you very much, Latrice, for this uh, useful and friendly conversation. Uh, I agree with you, Anastasios, that we don't see eye to eye on, on everything, but the willingness from the industry to actually engage in the EU process, even though fundamentally they might disagree with the principle, but the willingness to engage is most welcoming, and I think this is very constructive that they have joined the process and trying to to help to get the best out of it. On that note, thank you both. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a nice day.